Welcome to the Voices from the Road podcast, episode number nine, with me, Valerie Singleton. In this edition, we're in 1998, where we have the opportunity to delve into the privileged world of the motoring journalist. We're also popping over to Germany post-unification, well, just one day after East and West became one in October 1990. Nigel Lloyd-Jones will be on hand to recount the opening of a pilot car production line for the new Opel Vectra in the town of Eisenacht. But we're going to start with a reflection from our consultant historian Dr Alan Wakeley, who considers the somewhat complex process of taking your car across to the continent in 1937. The row-row vehicle ferry, row-row stands of course for roll-on, roll-off, is so familiar nowadays that we can easily forget that it is a much more recent invention than the motor car itself. Usually it seems to be dated from about 1948, when the cross-channel fleet was being rebuilt and or recommissioned after the Second World War. A large car ferry was not too difficult to design after a war when ships had had to be built to take thousands of military vehicles to and from the UK and continental Europe. Before the war, taking a car into, say, France was a major palaver. My mother used to have photos of her dad's Armstrong Sidley being lifted by crane into the hold of a boat at, I believe, Folkestone in 1930 or 31. Imagine the chaos if that was the procedure at Dover or Calais nowadays. But a little over a year ago, I came across a snippet of film which demonstrates that driving straight from Quayside onto a cross-channel steamer really did start before World War II. The film lasts just over 10 minutes and can be found on various social media platforms by searching for videos showing Flushing to London, 1937. The first half is devoted to a channel crossing from Flissingen, then known in this country as Flushing, to Harwich, supposedly in 1937. It is undoubtedly pre-war, because the trains shown arriving at Flissingen from all over Europe have boards on for places in Germany, and indeed elsewhere, which had no service at all to and from the North Sea ports for a long time after the war. I became intrigued. How many cars could this boat carry? The film doesn't show the car deck, but you do, after seeing the cars board it, get a glimpse of the life belts which say that the vehicle was the Princess Beatrix. Unexpectedly, this enabled a very accurate dating for the film, which has to have been shot in an eight-week period from July till the end of August 1939. The Princess Beatrix was a brand new ship that entered service on July 3rd 1939 and was seized for military work involving a complete repaint on the outbreak of hostilities at the beginning of September. She did return to cross-channel work after the war, but never again wore the livery she had for those eight weeks in the summer of 1939. Of course, I was trying to find out her car capacity and found a deck plan showing she could cope with just 15 one-five cars. This is not very many, but it certainly demonstrates that drive-on, drive-off facilities existed before the outbreak of war in 1939, even just for those few weeks. My researches had also, of course, proved that the around 1937 date, given for the first half of the film at least, was two years out, and it aroused my curiosity to discover more about the second half, which largely shows street scenes of London. 
These jump around geographically, and it struck me that they might have been filmed at different times and then been edited together. And this view was reinforced by the fact that right at the end, the very last two or three sequences of street shots are captioned, whereas the rest is not, and that does seem to suggest more than one source. I suppose there's something a bit nerdy about wanting to date an old film. But I am an historian by background, and getting dates right comes naturally to me. Sometimes this can matter. Film producers and location advisors spend a great deal of time trying to ensure that no cars or even bicycles appear in an adaptation of, say, a Jane Austen novel. Purists get upset if this happens. Historians like me are mildly amused, but of course we still approve of historical accuracy. The second half of Flushing to London 1937 starts with passengers disembarking in Harwich and then shows the boat train leaving for London. The first scene in London itself is a panorama, followed by an image of Horse Guards Parade filled with parked cars. I thought this only happened during tube strikes, but it turns out that the parade ground was used as a car park by civil servants working in Whitehall as late as 1997, so this was no help with my dating exercise. I did, however, wonder what the charge for such facilities nowadays would be. 50 quid a day, perhaps? After looking at the parade ground, there are a few seconds shot from Horse Guards Avenue looking across Whitehall. Two buses go past from right to left. It strikes me very quickly by today's standards. And behind the second you get a momentary glimpse of a taxi. But that was enough. I'm pretty sure that taxi is an Austin F1, and that first appeared in 1938. So again, the 1937 date was in doubt. There's then a succession of other various scenes shot in London. First is the complicated interchange adjacent to the Bank of England, where no fewer than ten roads converge. Traffic is restricted here to some extent nowadays, but there were no restrictions in the late 1930s. In the film, it is notable that the traffic is controlled entirely by policemen on point duty. Although modern-style traffic lights were first used in London in 1926, the sheer number of possible routes across the bank intersection was beyond what the electrical technology of the time could cope with. So policemen were used here until after the war, and at many other major junctions around the country. I don't know where the last place was, though I'll bet one of our readers does, but I do remember point-duty policemen at the Mersey Tunnel exit onto Lime Street in Liverpool as late as about 1967. These bank pictures in London are difficult to date precisely, but again, I think I spot one car, an Austin saloon, dating from 1938. Next, there is a sequence of views from the West End, chiefly around Theatreland. We can use cinema posters for dating purposes here, one of which advertises a film called Double Crime on the Maginot Line. This was a French film, French-language film indeed, dating from 1937, and it wasn't released in English until May 1939. After the West End sequences, our shots taken on two bridges over the Thames. Tower Bridge comes first, and here we can suggest a date from one of the buses that's shown. The one coming towards the camera is en route 42, and the blinds show the places en route, indicating that the bus had come from Turnpike Lane in North London, which route 42 only served after October 1938. The other piece shot on a bridge is on Westminster Bridge and shows a military column marching across, partly obscured by a tram. Marching soldiers are not uncommon in London, now or then, 
but in normal times they are always seen in dress uniform. This column is in ordinary fighting kit, and my guess is that they would have been on the way from Wellington Barracks to Waterloo Station, ready to embark for Europe, if war was declared. Of course, we know that war did start, and it makes this film all the more intriguing to know that it shows London in the very last few weeks before war changed everything. That was Alan Wakeley. Our next dispatch takes us to 1990, a year that sees the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope, while in the Middle East a crisis is brewing that will eventually lead to the Gulf War and Operation Desert Storm. Nelson Mandela is released from Victor Versta prison near Cape Town after 27 years behind bars. Mikhail Gorbachev is elected to a five-year term as the first ever president of the Soviet Union. And across Britain, there are riots and protests against the new poll tax. Towards the end of the year, Margaret Thatcher resigns after 11 years as Prime Minister and is replaced by John Major. We're heading to Germany, and it's the 4th of October, just one day after reunification, and Nigel Lloyd-Jones is in the eastern town of Eisenach, ready for the opening of the Opel Vectra production line. Here he is to explain what he was doing there and why it was so important. 33 years ago, I was creative director of uh, one of the leading live event agencies at the time. It was an agency called HPICM. And we had won the uh, business for Adam Opel, our gay, in Germany, which was quite a breakthrough for an English agency to actually work for uh, a German car manufacturer. So this story is basically covering the sort of 5th and, and 6th of October uh, 1990, and it, it brings together uh, the first Chancellor of the newly uh, united Germany, so that's Helmut Kohl, and he was only two days into his job, uh, a charismatic and, and visionary uh, president of General Motors Europe, a guy called Lou Hughes, and, and, and our agency, who were a, a group of fearless Brits, God, youth you know we 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 really did believe that nothing nothing was impossible and what we need to remember is you know this is we're talking about 33 years ago this is um before the days of the internet before the days of mobile phones you know it was a, a very kind of different world the setting of our story is the ancient town of eisenach uh, which is uh, a town in the state of Hurrigan in in central germany um it has many claims to fame. Um, it's where Martin Luther translated the Bible into Germany. It's, of course, uh, the birthplace of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, but from 1896, it was the centre of the German car uh, uh, industry and subsequently BMW uh, motorcycle production. And more recently, I think it was in 1996, that... It was Dennis designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Now, after the war and the division of Germany, Eisenach was in the German Democratic Republic and um, the BMW uh, motorcycle factory was taken over and renamed the Mortemil Werk Eisenach, that's A-W-E, A-W-E. And this is where they produced the Wartburg, um, which was actually named after the castle in Eisenach. And the Wartburg was then described as the Mercedes of the East. So 
for the German car industry, Eisenach was arguably its kind of emotional heart and very much in the way, you know, we all might remember Birmingham used to be uh, perceived to the UK. Lou Hughes, the president of General Motors, he was an amazing man and he really understood about emotional connections. And he kind of, even though he's an American, he really got the significance of Eisenach. Um, so one of his, um, one of his, the brands that General Motors Europe had at the time was, was Opel, popular German car brand, uh, traces its roots back to 1862 when I think so. They made sewing machines to begin with, um, and GM actually took over full control of Opel in in 1931. And Opel vehicles are sold in the UK under the Vauxhall brand. Now, Hugh saw the opportunities that unique unification of Germany would bring, but he needed to get significant funding from Detroit. So. He hatched this, really, I mean, it was extraordinary. I mean, a really audacious plan to actually build a pilot production line in Eisenach before unification. Quite extraordinary, these things were going on. And then he, he, um, he the plan was then the day after unification, that's October the 5th, they would invite um, uh, Chancellor Cole to come down to open the production line and to drive the first car made in Eisenach uh, in unification. So that was the, the Opel Vectra. Oh, God, the car that Clarkson gave such a kicking to. Uh, it wasn't that bad. It really wasn't. Um, so the whole plan was to generate kind of massive PR coverage. Now, we had started working with Lou Hughes and you know, at the previous year, we'd done this extraordinary premiere of the Opal Calibra at the Frankfurt Motor Show, which uh, was really groundbreaking at the time. So he thought, well, here's, here's a pretty fearless group of people. And so we were invited to come and, and plan and deliver the event on, on, on the day. So for, you know, the months and, and weeks beforehand, you know, I, I and my team were traveling from from London, from the depths of London in Soho, over to Russelsheim, which is where um, Opel's headquarters factory, and then by road to Eisenach. Lou Hughes always was a man to kind of stretch the envelopes. They said, great, guys, we're going to have this great event. I know you'll do a great job there. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to tell you that the Berlin Motor Show is happening at the same time. So um, could we, after the event, could we um, could we drive the car up to Berlin? And um, oh, yeah. And could we have a video of the event uh, running on the stand in Berlin? OK, so Eisenach to Berlin, uh, 225 miles. There's no Internet. The only way we could achieve this would be to drive there. And okay, Nigel, you're going to be the person driving the car. Anyway, um, so on the day, fascinating time before uh, the actual event, you know, going to East Germany, seeing the the nature of the environment. I mean, I'm, my West German uh, uh, Opal colleagues were really shocked. I don't know why, us Brits, we kind of, kind of accepted that that's actually what East Germany was like. Um, but God, the food was horrendous. <laughs> And also, I had a child. The toothpaste I was given was from China. 
So it really kind of gave you a bit of an insight to that. Um, one of the things that we had to do in the planning um, was um, Chancellor Cole actually had a body double. And the reason for this is he was a rather large gentleman. And so we had to have a body double come in to make sure he could actually fit in the car. So that was an important bit of planning. So um, on the day, we knew he was going to be absolutely mobbed by the workers uh, at the plant. And he was an absolutely extraordinary figure at the time. Uh, and his charisma was just, I mean, it was amazing being around him. So on the day, um, we thought, God, how on earth are we going to actually settle everyone down for the, um, um, for the actual event itself? And I was working at the time, an extraordinarily talented video team, film video team led by a producer, Julian Pullen, who's gone on to great things in the live event industry globally. And he, they made this amazing piece summarising emotionally what had happened over the last um, 18 months since the wall had come down. And um, so everyone came in, as we thought, Cole was absolutely mobbed. We got him seated in the front row and we ran this film. And you could have heard a pin drop. Everyone just sat there and watched this film. And I don't know what it was, you know, our spritz, we managed to capture something in this film. And we were due to cut to camera from, from the video to Chancellor Cole. And I was watching the monitors and tears were pouring down his face. And I knew we couldn't cut to him. It was just, it was, a, you could see it was an immensely private moment. Uh, and the, 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 the event itself, it was short, it was sweet. There was an amazing speech by him talking about what this vehicle that the Germans now had, these Germans now had to drive wherever they wanted all over Europe. It was incredibly powerful. Um, and it was it was an amazing amazing day but then our work was not finished once everyone had left uh, the editing had to take place we created the video and finally i was given the sort of the uh, beta i imagine that's what it was it was a beta tape that's right nigel here it is here's your car and off i and a colleague set overnight 225 miles through east germany and I really, I had really hadn't realised quite what this journey was going to be going to mean because you're driving on you know, East German roads, no road markings, in, a, in 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 the dark, and then there were all these West Germans driving into East Germany because this was their opportunity to reunite with family, to go and explore, and it was just. It was a battleground. You know, you've got the West Germans driving in in their uh, BMWs and Mercedes. And then you've got the East Germans similarly want to make the journey driving around, you know, driving in their East German cars. And it, it was just, uh, it was a battleground. I mean, the number of serious collisions that we saw and I mean, the horror of the impact of a, you know, a modern West German car hitting, you know, uh, an East German car, which literally were almost made of cardboard. And it was, it was, it was a terrifying journey. But finally, in the sort of early hours of the morning, we 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 reached um, East Berlin, and I'll never forget the sort of the mist, uh, guard posts at East Berlin, 
and the east german guard still standing there they just they didn't know what to do they just stood there they were lost and i could just remember the silhouette as we drove up to the point and we showed him our british passports and um they didn't really know what to do there was a feeling of loss and then we arrived into Ber berlin at the exhibition ground and because the event had all been organized very very late there were no hotel rooms available so all our crew were in a series of um camper vans <laughs> so we arrived at this car park and my colleague and i had a, a camper van uh, assigned to us and i can remember sort of waking up at you know, I only had a couple of hours sleep and then waking up and driving this camper van around to pick up the newspapers to see what the press coverage had been. And it was phenomenal. We'd got fantastic press coverage. Uh, we got the vehicle to Berlin. We had this wonderful video. Our job was done. Um, but then um, several months later, um, Lou Hughes contacted us, his assistant, and um, with a very unusual invitation. And that was for me and my my two colleagues, amazing technical director, Sheila Barnard and, and Julian, Julian Pullen, to go to his home and to have dinner with him in his home in Zurich. Very, very unusual. So we arrived there and, um, you know, we thought this was just a little thank you or something. He said, you might wonder why you're here. And of course, I want to say thank you. But he said, I want you to realize that, and I went to Detroit. I told them what was happening in Germany. And I said, just watch this. And he played the video that we created about unification video and the video we created about the event. And he said, this is what is happening in Germany. This is our opportunity. And he secured, you know, a huge investment in Eisenach. And, you know, he said to us and he said, what you did, you know, was a major, major factor in reaching the hearts of these hardened businessmen in Detroit. An amazing part of my career. I mean, Eisenach now has um, 1,360 employees, uh, produces the Opel Grandland, which is um, a mid-size SUV. It's still very much part of the Stellantis uh, manufacturing group. Um, so, you know, the roots are, are, are very, seem to be very solid there. But extraordinary privilege to be part of. And I have such admiration for, for the German people and that unification in that, you know, the spiritual home of, um, of the car industry in Eisenach. Nigel Lloyd-Jones was talking to James Luckhurst. Finally for this episode, we're in 1998, the year of the Good Friday Agreement, the founding of Google, the formation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, and President Bill Clinton's denial of the sexual relations allegations with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. In Manchester, Peter Baker is hard at work running all the automotive input to the recently created Men and Motors channel. We caught up with him and found out about his claim to have created more hours of motoring television than anyone else in the industry. 1998, the Men and Motors channel had been on air for two years, about two years, and it was set up uh, basically as a joint venture between Sky Television and Granada. Um, in those days, it was way before streaming channels and people had dishes on their roofs to pick up Sky Television, and Granada wanted to get in on the act. And so basically, my channel, Men and Motors, was one of many lifestyle channels, and so 
my job was to create four hours worth of motoring programming um, every night, basically. And uh, that went from sort of eight o'clock to midnight every uh, every night. And, uh, well, it ran for about six and a half years before I left and the channel changed a little bit. Talk through a typical week on the man and motors desk. Our brief was basically to appeal to motorists of all kinds. And um, and so it was hobbies. It was going out to the shows uh, up and down the UK, visiting museums and that sort of thing, as well as doing car reviews and car companies loved us because there was nothing else out there to do sensible car reviews. Top Gear was there, and quite often if they had one of the new models of a car, they'd uh, make fun out of it or thrash it to bits or whatever, and they'd only want the the top-of-the-range stuff. The, uh, The normal cars, should I say, were kind of ignored by Top Gear. There were a few other regional car shows in the 90s as well. Um, Of course, there was Channel 4 had a few shows. There was Driven and things like that. And there were some regional car shows, but didn't cover the UK as much as as we did. Um, So, you know, we were in quite high, high demand for doing things. And as soon as car companies knew about us, then we were kind of inundated with uh, invites to car launches. And this was our, our first sort of foray into this. What did you drive and how did it find its way onto uh, Men and Motors channel? Well, we did have a very good start because General Motors, or as it exists here in the UK, Vauxhall, um, uh, agreed for us to go to the Detroit show. And that's the first one we, we did there. And then we thought, well, not much of this is going to be relevant to the UK viewer. So we made it more of a, a sort of us versus them kind of thing. And uh, there was a spin-off programme, which we did with Howard Stapleford, who was uh, used to be a presenter for Tomorrow's World. We called it Bonnets and Hoods, the difference between UK and US. But the Detroit show was, was, was excellent, and we just sort of filmed everything. We had very low budgets. We didn't. We had like a hundredth of the budget of Top Gear, probably. Um, so we didn't have much. So we were basically going to these car shows all around the world, uh, not just Detroit, Frankfurt, Geneva, Tokyo, whatever, um, always with um, with an empty suitcase <laughs> because we, we were collecting basically tapes, as, uh, as we call them VNRs, video news releases, from car companies. So we'd interview someone on the stand about this new Chevrolet or Corvette or something like that, and then we'd come back with a, a, a video news release tape of the car being driven. I remember us being at the Geneva Motor Show one year, and I was with my presenter, Ginny Buckley, who introduced me to uh, a young man on the Renault stand who said, yeah, oh, he heard of men and motors and could he audition? So I said, yeah, OK. I switched my camera on. He taught me around this uh, uh, car on the Renault stand, and he was brilliant, absolutely great. So I said, look, you know, contact me when I'm back in Manchester, and we might make you a presenter. And that young man was Richard Hammond. And we worked with him for six, seven years before he went off to Top Gear. Very talented man. A lot of the time when you're overseas, you're going to be driving left-hand drive cars on right-hand side of the road. Was that a problem for Men and Motors, which was a a UK channel? Did you have to flip the the video around so it looked like it was uh, driving on the left, for example? No, not really. I mean... When we said we were in Norway driving Volvos or whatever, or Malta, Sardinia and Sicily were often went to, they were always good locations for car launches. Uh, not many in the UK, I think generally because of the weather, and we were grateful for that in the wintertime particularly. 
because it just wouldn't look good for the car companies to be driving in some sodden grey place. So they usually fly you to the sunshine and usually club class as well and lots of food and drink and all this sort of stuff. Um, I remember we did a film for BMW in uh, South Carolina, USA, and we were at their factory in Greer for the Z3 launch. In fact, that factory in America was the first one to actually build BMWs outside uh, Germany, and we saw a Z4 uh, disguised in the factory tour as well, which we were told to not film at all. Uh, When we were driving the cars, the state troopers actually closed a main road in the area um, just for us Brits, just for an hour, so we could film us going up and down and enjoy a BMW on the correct side of the road. Did car companies lend you cars as well? We asked for a, a, a car to be delivered to us, and then we had it for about a week, and then we filmed it, and then it was returned, and someone picked it up from the uh, car company. I, I always remember once we had uh, a one from Tartar. It was their Jeep, a big red Jeep, um, which didn't have good reviews in the press, but we wanted to try it out ourselves, and we were going to you know, maybe make a bit of fun of it. Um, but actually, it was all right. We, we thought it was quite good. Uh, we gave it a good review for, for the target audience it was aimed at. Anyway, after filming, we left it in the Granada Television car park, waiting for someone to collect it, but they never did. And we reminded them two days, three days, a week went past, two, two weeks. And then on the third week, we had a phone call saying someone would collect it. However, then I got a phone call saying, uh, we've come to collect the Tartar Jeep. It's not there. We thought, what? It must be there. It's been there for weeks. You haven't bothered to collect it. And then someone uh, in the office at Granada looked on the ring main TVs. And we had TVs of where things were being filmed in the rest of the TV complex, like, you know, a a bit of uh, University Challenge or Stars in the Rise or whatever. But we noticed that they were filming Coronation Street. And there was our Tartar Jeep, and someone was using it as a sort of a a car to be used to fill up the road. So Tartar got uh, on network TV, um, thanks to security messing up the keys. And Bet Lynch at the wheel, perhaps. Um, (laughs) Maybe, absolutely. Uh, These cars were often just uh, hired in for props, and sometimes there were staff cars, but uh, that that was the idea, to make it look like, uh, you know, a proper working street with a variety of cars. I'm not sure people in Coronation Street would have wanted a Tartar Jeep, maybe. But anyway, it was on an episode in the 90s. So these were golden times. You look back on them fondly. Um, snout in the trough of the big automotive PR machine, but it worked in your favour. Well, we didn't ask to go club class and first class everywhere or get all the posh food. I, I think, in a way, it was very hard work going on car launches because we had to film everything there. We couldn't film it when we got back, uh, whereas many of the press journalists were... Uh, lucky in a way in that they could enjoy the experience and everything and go to the sauna and you know chat and drink and all this stuff and write it up when they got home (laughs) so uh, we had to film everything there i remember the volvo launch that was in the middle of winter um hardly had any light outside because uh, obviously it was almost at the arctic circle so we had all those difficulties of darkness and it was freezing and being cold it meant that your batteries in your camera only lasted a few minutes so you know it, it, it wasn't all uh, sweetness and light great fun yes 1998 our heyday at uh, granada mena motors channel Peter Baker was remembering his prolific output of motoring television in 1998. 
And that brings us to the end of the latest episode in the Voices from the Road podcast. I'll be back again next time with another selection from our podcast archive. But for now, from me, Valerie Singleton, it's goodbye. <laughs>